Welcome to Dead Pilot Society, the show that takes comedy pilots from A-list writers that were sold and developed at networks but never produced and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. I'm Andrew Reich, the creator and host of Dead Pilot Society. This is the after show for Perfect Harmony, featuring my interview with the writer of Perfect Harmony, Tim Long, as well as with John Radler. John was an executive at Imagine, Ron Howard and Brian Grazer's company, who were the producers on the project. And it's great to get his perspective, and I think he brings a lot of clarity to what the producer's role on a pilot really is. In this case, a lot of it was dogged determination to not give up on a great idea. Our writer, Tim Long, is a former head writer on Late Night with David Letterman and has been a writer and producer on The Simpsons for 24 years. You heard that right. This conversation goes in some really interesting directions about music as well as TV. And man, as you will hear, it is just crazy that this pilot never got shot. The cast they had attached to this, all the elements, uh, it's, it's insane. But I know you, Dead Pilot Society listeners, are used to these kinds of insane stories. Okay, here is my interview with Tim Long and John Radler. Hey there, I'm Ellen Weatherford. And I'm Christian Weatherford. And we've got big feelings about animals that we just got to share. On Just the Zoo of Us, your new favorite animal review podcast, we're here to critically evaluate how each animal excels and how it doesn't, rating them out of 10 on their effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Guest experts give you their takes informed by actual, real-life experiences studying and working with very cool animals like sharks, cheetahs, and sea turtles. It's a field trip to the zoo for your ears. So if you or your kids have ever wondered if a pigeon can count, why sloths move so slow, or how a spider sees the world, find out with us every Wednesday on Just the Zoo of Us in its natural habitat on MaximumFun.org. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Good. Tim Long, John Radler, thanks for being here. Um, Our pleasure. John's pleasure. It's definitely John's (laughs) pleasure. John... We're going to get to you in just a few moments. First, before we get into Perfect Harmony, Tim, you have an amazing career that I want to hear more about, that you've been at two places for a very long time at both of each of those places. Um, yes. St- starting uh, one, Letter- place, one place much longer than the other one. Yes. Uh, though, though the time at Letterman seemed longer. Uh, there's, yeah, I was there like three, I was at, well, my first TV job was with Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher. Okay. On the old Comedy Central Network. And I was there for a year, and then I was at Letterman for three years, and I've been at The Simpsons for a thousand years. How many years for real have you been at The Simpsons? I joined the staff of The Simpsons in March of 1998. Uh... The words Monica Lewinsky had just entered the vernacular. Um, <laughs> we were all, uh, it was just a long time ago. So it's uh, coming up this March, provided I'm not fired in the next three months, it will be 24 years. That is just absolutely incredible. Yeah. It's, uh, it's bananas. I was, I was like 20, gosh, how old was I? I was 28. And I, my first day coincided with the first day of these legendary comedy writers named Tom Gamble and Max Pross. Mm-hmm. who had been at Seinfeld and Letterman and SNL and a million other places. They were coming in just to consult one day a week. And they said, how old are you? And I said, I'm 28. And they said, oh boy, we're 42. And I was like, 42? Jesus, <laughs> and you're still doing this? 
and now I'm considerably older than 42 and I'm still doing this. So uh, before we get to the Simpsons, how do you get that that politically incorrect job? Um, I think it was because just a, a friend of mine, this guy named Chris Kelly, um, who's a hilarious writer, who I think still works for Bill Maher from time to time. He and I worked together on the old Spy magazine, uh, which was based in New York, which is a hilarious humor magazine that was started in the mid eighties and went through like the early nineties. I was an intern there. And a bunch of people from that staff, even though the, the, the place collapsed under our feet, a bunch of people from that staff have gone into great things, including Chris, um, a fellow by the name of Louis Theroux, who is right. now a big documentary filmmaker in Britain and a bunch of other people. So um, yeah, it was just a classic. I know this guy, he vouched for me. I had no business being there. I learned on the job and that was my start. I mean, one nice thing is that back then, the early nineties, uh, so many shows are starting up like Conan was starting up and Letterman was moving to CBS and Omar was starting and so like they just needed a lot of people like the, the merry-go-round slowed down just enough for us to jump on and I've been and, clinging for dear life ever since <laughs> and I don't want to profile you but were you a Harvard Lampoon guy no I am actually the other great comedy cliche I'm Canadian okay. it's one or the other there's a couple people who are both which is just I feel like horrible overkill, but no, I'm Canadian. I'm a small town Canadian okay. uh, who managed to, to make my way down here the other, with, a, the, with a packet and a dream. Yeah. The other path. Okay. So, so from politically incorrect, um, what was the interview with uh, Letterman like? It was, it, well, it was funny because I've been recommended, that was a weird situation because they adopted this very anarchic and psychologically destructive hiring policy, which was that they were gonna keep hiring people and firing people in rapid succession. So a few friends of mine, in fact, Chris was working there for a while and then he got fired. And then my friend, Eric Zicklin, who's an amazing comedy writer was working there for a while and just long enough to recommend me. And then he got fired and then they called me in and I wrote a little packet. And of course, like everyone in my age cohort, I was just besotted with Dave. And so, yeah, I went in there and he was, it was very weird because he was like, he's much skinnier than I thought he would be. He was wearing some sort of tam shanter and sweatpants. And he was also yelling. I remember feeling like I'm, two, I'm in two feet in front of this guy. And he's like, hey, Tim, nice to meet you. And I didn't know whether that was because the band was playing so loud on the show that his hearing was shot. And then he goes, so uh, you're, I, just, you're, I understand you're interested in coming to work for us. And he said, um, but you have a job right now. Are you available? And uh, I was like, well, uh, and I sort of botched the answer. He's like, well, I guess you could get fired and then we could get you. And then I was like, yeah. And I made some sort of weird laugh and then I left. And then uh, just a few weeks later, they said, yeah, you should come aboard and see what happens. Um, and so that was a pretty, you know, kind of golden era of that show that you lived through. It, it was, it was, it, it just, I think my third week there, <coughs> past Dave in the ratings so I feel like I just my whole job is to go around ruining beloved uh <laughs> comedy institutions um but you know that Hugh Grant thing happened so it was a lot of forces beyond our control but yeah it was amazing and he was you know he was everything you expect him to be like grouchy and brilliant and wonderful and maddening and it was uh yeah an irreplaceable experience and then how does the transition to the Simpsons come about um, that happens because, like all head writers, I went from being a writer to being the head writer, and I burned out really quickly. Um, it was like, you know, having that job, for some reason, it was weird, because 
in the 80s when we all kind of fell in love with Letterman, he was like 40 and all his writers were 30. When I went to work for him, he was 50 and all his writers were 25. And we were all just terrified of him. And I was the head writer. He went through a lot of head writers. And I was just like, I, I think it's safe to say by the end of it, I was a broken man. It was like a touring knob, just like every single night. So I still, you know, I know people have nightmares about missing exams. I have nightmares about we don't have an act four tomorrow. Like I don't, I don't really have any Simpsons nightmares. I definitely have Letterman nightmares. And so I decided I needed to get out. And uh, for some reason at that point, there was this weird pipeline of Letterman head writers to the Simpsons. Um, and so I think a guy named Donnick Carey, who had been the head writer at Letterman before me, he was at the Simpsons and he recommended me to Mike Scully, who was running the Simpsons at the time. And I didn't have a spec script, but Mike was like, well, I guess I can meet with you and see how that goes. And so I flew out, he was like, you gotta get out here somehow. So I came, I flew out and I met him for lunch at Coogie's. You know that place, Coogie's in Malibu? It's this crappy breakfast place. Yeah. And I, I, what I was thinking before, a suit? I think my dad was like, you're gonna wear a suit? You gotta wear a suit for the job interview. And he's in like flip flops and a UMass sweatshirt. Um, and we got to talking and uh, I guess we hit it off. He was like, yeah, we'll give you a try. And uh, that try is now 24, hour, 24 years later. And had, so had, did you even have like a half hour sample? I did. Had you, had you, <laughs> had you did. ever written a narrative no. show? You'd only really written sketch no. monologue and late night stuff. I, I, I don't know if I'd ever even written a sketch. I mean, I'd written little <laughs> scripted bits on the Letterman show and some, and some tape things and I'd gone out on remotes. But my skill set was not well matched to the show. But I was somebody who could pitch a lot of jokes and just through sheer barrage, I could get it. Like I, I, I did pretty well from the beginning and, and Scully's take was, you're coming aboard as the staff writer or whatever, we don't need you to pitch fully formed stories. We'd like you to learn how to do that, but you just have to pitch a lot. And I did, so, but yeah, I don't think I, it's funny, my first, I, the first story I got approved at The Simpsons was inadvertent. It was at that interview with Mike Scully. We were talking about our, he was from Springfield, Mass, which is very snowy. And my town was crazy snowy. And I told this story about how one day we were expecting a blizzard and snow days were the biggest thing for us. And we woke up one morning, we thought it was going to be a blizzard. and It was totally nice out. We were devastated. And then we walked to school. And as soon as we got to school, the blizzard started and we had to stay overnight at school. And he's, and I just told that story because, you know, just to fill the time. He's like, that could be a Simpsons story. I was like, Oh, okay. And that was my first story on The Simpsons. It's called Skinner's Sense of Snow. But then I kind of, I think I like drew a goose egg for a couple of years in terms of pitching whole episodes after that. But it and, kept me going. And you wrote the draft of that episode? Yep. Mm -hmm. And was, yeah. so that, when you wrote that draft, that's that's the first That was the first half hour. At, yeah. And it was, and it, it somehow got on TV. Wow. Um, yeah. And I mean, how many years did it take before you felt comfortable at that part of it? Obviously, you're right away comfortable pitching jokes. I'll, 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 I'll keep you posted. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would say, really, I only I think two or three years later, I you know I tried pitching a few stories and they weren't doing well. I pitched a, the first story I remember pitching in its entirety that got on the air was the Bart and his friends form a boy band show, uh, okay. and they meet in in sync and it's very very silly and we and I. You know, it, and that was the first episode for which I wrote funny songs, which has become sort of one of my uh, little bailiwicks on the show and probably eventually led to Perfect Harmony. Okay. And and probably also led to some nice ASCAP 
or BMI. Oh my God, it's the, it's the <laughs> best. Yeah, that is free money. That's people don't realize that is. Uh, it's I, really good. There's one. There's there's a there's like a Phoebe song in one episode, uh, or maybe there's two. I don't think you know episodes I wrote that. I don't think I had anything to do with writing those songs. So the name happened <laughs> right. to be, and I and and little checks come in all the time, and it's really. I know it's really <laughs> nice. Yeah, really nice. Yeah. Um, and then there's also the trick of if there's a. Uh, I learned recently that this is going way off on a tangent, but any show that has an instrumental opening, somebody usually people are smart enough to write lyrics for it. So even if you never hear the lyrics, they get payments for it. So for example, I just found out that the Hawaii Five O theme has lyrics and uh, that uh, Sammy Davis Jr. wrote, sang them. Really? Uh, you, and we're gonna you, put- and, Do you know any of those lyrics? Yeah, if you're sad that, there's, there's a, it's a whole, the men, the, the words Hawaii Five O are never in them. It's like, it's like, if you're ever in trouble, I will come to you, whether near or far, ba, 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 ba. and then the best line he goes, I will think of something to do. And that just cracks me up. Like in the middle of the song, he's like, I don't know what to do, but I'll think of something. <laughs> and we're putting that over the credits of an upcoming Simpsons episode for reasons that are hard to explain. Ah, that's so good. <laughs> um, yeah. favorite, do, you, do you have some favorites of the, of the episodes you've written over the years? Yeah, I mean, weirdly, this is the, the, it's weird enough to work on a show for 20 some years, but actually I'd say, I have to say the last year I've enjoyed the show more than anything. I've been sort of part of the, I'm, I'm what's called a co-runner. I'm working directly under this guy, Matt Selma, who's running most of the episodes. Um, and, and he's allowed me to do some weird stuff. Like I had an episode earlier this year where Lisa falls in love with a Morrissey type character. Um, we called him Quillaby, but he's clearly Morrissey. And, uh, <laughs> and we had, uh, and she, he becomes imaginary. She discovers him on Spotify and then she starts to imagine him as her imaginary friend. Um, so we got to write some fake Smith songs. I wrote them with uh, Brett McKenzie from the Flight of the Concords, who's oh, wow. incredible. And we got Benedict Cumberbatch to play uh, him, which was great. So very excited about that one. And I have one coming up where um, it's a very strange episode. It's inspired by, inspired by a lot of things, but there was a piece in the Atlantic last year about how the middle-class lifestyle on The Simpsons is no longer realistic. There's this very kind of like dry piece about it's illustrating that the middle class has been destroyed and the Simpsons isn't realistic. And I thought that was so funny. And so I wrote an episode, uh, a musical episode that's about that, where Bart finds out that he can never have the job that his dad had. And it becomes this kind of weird musical fantasia. Um, and Hugh Jackman is in it. He plays this janitor who explains the decline of the American middle class. And Robert Reich is in it, the former US Secretary of Labor. <laughs> and it's very weird. Um, but I'm really excited about that. And that should, I think that's the season finale in May. So it sounds like, you know, uh, and the cliche question that I'm sure you get asked a lot, which is how do you, after so many years, keep coming up with ideas for the show? And yet I feel like you've just answered that uh, because I yeah, guess you, you just, just come like, it can be from anywhere. It could be any, it could be just anything. If you don't have the pressure anything, of like, yeah. this is, we're just doing two, two, you know, 10 episode seasons and whatever, you know, at this point you've done enough that it's like, you probably know almost any notion can be turned into an episode. Right. Right. And yeah. And because we have such an elastic world and so many characters, we can do almost anything. Um, and let's face it, like we do, <laughs> we occasionally tread over ground that we've touched on before, but if you can do it in a new way, you know, God bless you. Um, so yeah, I certainly hope that we can keep going because I have no other skills. 
<laughs> and it's still it's 24 years later it's still you're sounds like you're still having a great time it's been great the last year or two has been just terrific i mean they've all been great but especially recently i've been having a really good time such an incredible i mean there's just no i mean there's nothing whatever, else like it yeah you know i don't even, yeah. i don't know how long people lasted on Gunsmoke. But I mean, those, those would be the only people that could relate to Even your gun smoke. Well, they did like 50 episodes a year. So they only lasted like, or some crazy number. And it was always like somebody lost their Stetson or something. <laughs> They're pretty simple stories. But I think that show lasted like what, 15 years? We right. were just weird. You've blown past them. We were in our throat at 15 years. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so at what point in that run do you sell your first pilot? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I think at some point, about 10 years in, I was like, I didn't really have a strong aspiration to like run the show or to be an upper management. So I think I decided at some point to go from part full time to part time. And that's when I started selling, uh, pitching, going on pitching pilots and doing other things. I sold a pilot to Showtime. I did a thing for HBO with Molly Shannon. And these are all very good experiences, even though they never got on the air. Um, I wrote a movie which actually got produced called The Exchange, which came out on streaming earlier this year. Um, and then, and I let's see what else did I do? I sold a pilot to NBC, which is an adaptation of a BBC show called Cuckoo. So I had a nice sort of side gig going um, with pilots and stuff, which is when I uh, and I'd done all of those things when I first encountered my good friend John Rattler. And imagine, I think we were on it. Somebody set us up on a general meeting. Okay, so, all right, so John, you're working at Imagine, and you remember that meeting with Tim Long? Of course, like the start of all great, <laughs> of all great love stories, a general meeting. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's right. I think probably your agent um, had set us up, and uh, um, I, I guess the first thing you do before, well, I take most meetings. If you call me, I'll, I'll take them doesn't matter there's not a there's not like a really you even met with me yeah the bar the bar is pretty low um but at some point after i've accepted the me the calendar request I'll, I'll i'll look at the credits and then i saw tim long wrote on i think my two favorite shows david letterman and uh and the simpsons and um i'm kind of a, a junkie for store for behind the scenes of any show or movie that i love and so uh we probably spent, I probably just, I think I've been peppering Tim with questions that he, he's probably uh, somewhat annoyed uh, at this point. But, Never, uh, ever. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but I, I, I ask him, cause I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. I mean, I guess I'm always, probably the audience for this show too, is probably equally fascinated with how the sausage gets made, but even, so. even beyond that, um, uh those two shows in particular uh are just like the the cream so i did you uh, discuss this this idea at that meeting or that came later yeah i actually um i i have to give credit to i have a colleague i think i think my colleague stacy was in the meeting um with us does that sound right tim yes it was and yeah she, she um, was and i I weirdly just ran into her in Ojai, of strange, strangely enough, where she lives. Yeah, she's she's moved to Ojai over the um, over the past couple of years. I think she's coming back. Anyways, I think she had read 
she had read Tim will remember all the details, but there was there was a um an article in a um I think it was a British newspaper. Does that sound right, Tim? Yeah, it was about Artie Garfunkel being bitter. Yeah, was which it? yeah. I, I yeah, I can't remember all the details, but she just sent it to me and um and said uh do, do you think, I think she said, do you think there could be a show in this? And I was, I'm a huge Simon and Garfunkel, I've always been a massive Simon and Garfunkel fan. And, um, and, uh, and I think also just kind of fascinated by musical partnerships. And um, I guess partnerships of any kind are interesting, but musical partnerships tend to be particularly so. And, um, and, uh, and uh, I think that was it. I think it was like we had just read this thing maybe moments before the the meeting with Tim, and it was it was serendipitous timing, and and we just mentioned it to him, and Tim happened to be a huge music buff. Um, he really is like if there's a biography written about someone, he's read it. Um, <laughs> so it was it was really fortuitous that that we met with Tim and he was like the perfect person to create this, um, the show out of an idea, which was really not much. <laughs> it is funny. Like I will, I don't know why, but I just find all music biographies. Like I love that show behind the music. I adored. Um, I just watched, and I'll watch a documentary about a band. I hate, like <laughs> I just watched this two parter about kiss whom I've always had something between indifference and loathing for i was like sure i want to see this let's see with the dynamic between paul stanley and gene simmons let's hear what what they have to say and it was just it was just like eating like butterscotch pudding i was just like spooning it into my mouth i would watch it again right now <laughs> i am in so exactly the same way um anything any music documentary yeah. any music biography any biopic even though every oh music God, they're almost all terrible i love all of them yeah so had you when so so he brings this up and that's kind of like it's sort of in the pocket oh, we're like, for you that sounds which, great yeah um had you had you previously considered anything in a similar area yeah no not really i mean i as i said i've done musical stuff for the simpsons but for some reason I, sometimes I, you know i'm one of those writers that sometimes if someone just gives me this, I, I need a slight notion to go on. Um, and John introduced this idea and I was just getting over, I think it was like June of 2015, I want to say. And I just had a pilot come very, very close to being on the air on NBC. Is and that, so I was, was still that in Cuckoo? The, that was Cuckoo, yeah. Um, and, and it became really close. And in fact, they almost said like, you're on, we're almost sure, stand by, we're sending you tickets to New York for the upfronts. And then no. And then like, you know, that's, I still had a job and so it shouldn't have been that big a deal, but anyone who's had that happen, it just feels like a breakup. And you know, it's like you're depressed for a couple of months. And so that was the context in which I came in to see Rattler. But when we started talking about this thing, I was like, this is great. And so I think you might've suggested just coming up with like Wikipedia entries for these two fake guys. And so I think I went home in a night and wrote for these guys, Downey and Finkelman. Uh, and like came up with all their fake songs. And I, I very quickly, came, I think we came up with the idea that they both been married to the same woman at different times. Um, and it just it was, felt- I remember the Wikipedia pages. They are, they were and are hilarious. And um, 
I believe what was so interesting was that really inspiring was that maybe in a night or two, Tim kind of invented this whole world and such an intricate and interconnected backstory for these two characters. Um, and I remember on the Wikipedia page, they, they, they kind of worked hand in hand, like on one, you'd read one page and, and it's, and it talked of a, a movie role that Matt, the two, the two characters in the script, the main two characters are named Matt Downey and Arlo Finkelman. And um, I believe uh, Arlo had been hired for um, a dinosaur film that was sort of fashioned after Jurassic Park. Um, what was it called? Uh, oh, it was called, uh, I can't remember what the movie was called, but he got fired. It was, it, I was inspired by the fact that Art Garfungal had initially got, had this kind of movie career going with Colonel Knowledge and Catch-22. And then that fell aside. And then Paul Simon, his, that noir, not only his music career got better, but Paul Simon started showing up in more movies <laughs> and maybe even taking roles that would have gone to Art Garfungal like in Annie Hall, for example. So yeah, I can't, I don't remember <laughs> the name. I think that somehow Pickleman got fired from this Jurassic Park type movie because he, he was angry that dinosaurs that didn't coexist in real life were <laughs> both existing in the same park. And so he was such a pain in the ass, they fired him. Then they hired Downey. It became a whole different movie and Downey ends up singing a song to one of the dinosaurs called Hush Raptor Hush. And it just went, yeah. it, it just was such a fun, and then just driving like Finkelman bananas. And all that they, just they, came sort of pouring out after yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because you, there is a real dynamic with these partnerships. There tends to be one guy, not so much with Simon Garfunkel, but one guy who's sort of an angry purist and one guy who's sort of glibber, but has more success. Like Keith Richards tends to be the Finkelman and Mick Jagger is the Downey or John Lennon is the Finkelman or and Paul McCartney is the Downey like it just sort of this keeps happening um and the, and I, and there's such oh go ahead I was gonna say that I've been thinking about this a lot Tim I have a soft spot for people who are I call them path of most resistance characters and, <laughs> right and I think that Arlo is the quintessential path of most resistance I might be I might be one of them myself um <laughs> it's, it's possible it's a, a great phrase yeah, that is and uh and it, it's just that any any opportunity that that this this character could have um gone left when he should have gone right or you know <laughs> it's it's just always managed to do to do the wrong thing in terms of uh and and that that would just drive him deeper and deeper into his own like isolation right is, uh, is gene simmons finkelman or or does that's that a, not apply is it a, really ace I, was ace really finkelman and and well ace paul was and sort of yeah I, I i learned that yeah paul and gene were sort of a combined downing they were both sort of like we do whatever we can to survive they were both relatively sober they would get to the shows on time very professional Whereas Ace Freely was like, yeah, he's always drunk. And, and Peter Chris was sort of one of these guys too. Um, yeah, just, it's just self-destructive. Even though Ace Freely was, most people would say that of everyone in the band, he was the one who came close to having actually musical ability. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is a podcast. <laughs> Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. 
She says she's the devil himself. That thing is not my daughter. And I want you to tell me there's a show where the hosts don't just report on French science and spirituality, but take part themselves. Well, there is, and it's Ono, Ross, and Carrie on Maximum Fun. This year, we actually became certified exorcists. So yes, Carrie and I can help your daughter. (laughs) Or we can just talk about it on the show. Ono, Ross, and Carrie on MaximumFun.org. And you said in our little talk that Adam Schlesinger from Fountains of Wayne was was sort of involved early on. He he did some initial, I mean, I think he came to a few meetings. I think he was just about to uh, start working on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Okay. And was going to have to commit to that. That's how long ago this was. I worked Um, on a a thing at at the very beginning of my career uh, for Disney called Zombies and Zombies and Cheerleaders. And then I met Adam. Adam wrote the music for that. And it was it was incredible. Um, And um, and he's was such a he really was some kind of a genius and an incredibly collaborative guy. And and um, uh, I just thought he and Tim would really hit it off. And they did. And then we actually brought that pitch to 20th Century Fox, if you remember. Um, I remember. Because at the time, Imagine, uh, which was the production company that, that I was working at, and that's your audience probably. Do they know? It's Brian Grazer and Ron Howard's company. It's sure. been around for 35 years. They've done pretty, they've got a pretty incredible body of work, both in um, film and, uh, and, uh, and TV. So we won't dwell on it, but, um, but it's kind of a, it's kind of a storied company. And, uh, and they were in a deal, an exclusive deal at 20th Century Fox. So, you know, as, as happened, as has happened too many times for me, for me, something that I, Tim, in in the meantime, Tim cooked up a a pretty great pitch for the project. Um, Really an exceptional pitch, very detailed and really incredibly um, well-developed, well-drawn characters. And, um, and we brought it into 20th and I was like, Oh, this is a slam dunk of slam dunks. It's a great idea. And, uh, and, and, uh, and the work was great. And Adam Schlesinger was attached and, um, they hated it. Like the comedy executives at the, <laughs> I don't think any of them are there anymore, fortunately, but like, they just did not see it the same, the same way. We I, it was amazing. It. Like we had, I mean, I feel like, if, I don't remember what exactly how it went down, but like there was, there was, a, a, you know, you've got jokes peppered throughout your thing. And there's, and you think you have this huge laugh about three lines in, and then you just wait and <laughs> you get this silence that like you could have recorded room tone. It was so you can hear that you just say your joke and then you can hear the air condition for about three seconds. Like, oh boy, I better keep going. And then you realize you've got this whole thing. So many more pages to get through. So many more pages that you have to get through. And it's like, I think, uh, yeah, it's not a good feeling. That's when I start to talk really fast and then that makes it even worse. Uh, It's hard to keep your composure when when you realize it's not going well and you've got so much more. I do know people who have just been like, should we just leave? Should we call it? But I've never had the balls. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, I would 
I would do that, except that I've had experiences where I thought, well, that went terribly. And then the column says they want it. Right. That's and, the or, thing. and I've also had experiences where it was just like, I just blew the roof off the dump and they're like, absolutely no way. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't really tell. Yeah. Um, maybe they were just, were they just they, they're not music fans in that way. I mean, you know they, what I think it was in fair, in fairness to them. I think what year was this, Tim? This was like, this is 2015 or early 2016. So it was re and and at that time, twentieth was a very traditional broadcast facing studio, and things were just starting to change. And um, but but really wouldn't change uh, to a point where they would have been able to really take this out to the right buyers for another couple of years. And Imagine's deal with the studio was such that if they didn't want to do it we couldn't do it <laughs> that that was that right, right. um yeah. so uh so i would say in their defense i don't i think when you when you're hearing 10 pitches a day and they're all like you know intended for abc or nbc or fox this was this was clearly not um so it didn't really fit their um their model at the time yeah i mean it's it's such a character study um in a way that um not that it's not not that there's not a ton of great comedy in it but it's not the sort of obvious it's not someone's got to move in with someone and they're going to right right um so the you know i don't know if the comedy would have been as as obvious to them in some of the more networky kind of pitches because it does not it does not feel like a network show really not at all yeah um just the frame of reference and the sort of the intelligence of, of it and you're you're assuming um an audience that you know is going to get these types of, of characters in the world that they're in that or Efron kind of character and so I can see right. if, you're, if you're thinking we're going to throw this on CBS it's going to be a tough <laughs> yeah yeah um, but it, it reminds so, me a little bit of not to not to put us on these on this lofty level but I just rewatched the um the documentary on Hulu about the Dana Carvey show uh-huh. on abc which is one of the most entertaining comedy documentaries i've ever seen and they're it's just great yeah they are not dealing with a, a network show at all but somehow they're just on abc and they're dealing with ted harbert and all these network people and it's just hilarious how mismatched they are yeah um and we sort of might have had a minor version of that so but it ends up at amazon eventually well, well on, it, yeah probably went on ice for what a year a year at least. And the weird thing is, one thing that was really inspiring about John Radler is like, even at that point, I had got, I had been in comedy and in, been in television writing long enough to know that when something dies, you let it go. Like, there's this weird thing that like, you're the worst thing, I, occasionally you'll see a writer who's like Miss Havisham walking around in a wedding dress and being like, <laughs> you gotta let it go. And I've been taught, don't ever do that. So like, if it <laughs> dies, it dies. It's a sort of a learned helplessness. So I was like, oh, I guess that's not going to happen. Oh, well. And as I said, I was already kind of depressed about Cuckoo dying. So I was like, I guess I'll go back to my dream job and whatever at the Simpsons. So I was just like going along. And then, you know, rather I would talk every once in a while because we'd struck up a friendship and he'd be like, I'm still sending it out. And I'd be like, okay, you do that. But he was really a dog with a bone on this. And I got to give him all the credit in the world. And then one day, like about 15 months later, I get this call with some very unlikely information um, which is that Danny DeVito was interested. Um, and then it all kind of, it all kind of like came back to life. 
Do you remember when that happened, John? Yeah. uh, Well, so during the period that it was on ice, well, I should clarify, I don't don't drop anything. A pitch, (laughs) uh, uh, a minor point in an argument with my wife, nothing. So um, uh, I, 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 um, I'll tell you really quickly what was so it's like when, when you, when you have, when you're in my position, all, all you really need are like good, good, great ideas or like, or a great book or whatever it is. And they are really few and far between. So it is, it's hard when you, when you really believe in something because you wake up the next morning and you're like, I don't have any, I don't have any good ideas today. <laughs> you know, it's like, cause I don't really know where they, I don't know where they come from, to be honest. And this was, and Absolutely. this was, a, and this was a good one. I know it. I, I knew it. I know it. And, um, and uh, what happened uh, during that intervening period of time was imagine left their longtime deal at 20th and went independent, which now opened up an entirely new universe of platforms that we can pitch the project to. Um, at the time, it really felt like to really sell something at a high level and meaningful way to the kinds of places where we envision the show, you had to have some, some other attachment to it, um, talent or, or whatnot. And, um, and uh, I think had, we had always really talked about, um, oh, wait, wait, no, 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 now I remember. Okay. We actually went to Jeff Goldblum first. We always envisioned Jeff Goldblum as uh, Matt Downey. And um, and you wrote, did you write with, with Goldblum in mind? Well, certainly once we got, we at that point, we hadn't even written a pilot yet. Okay. But once we wrote the pilot, boy, did we ever. We okay. like went to town. <laughs> um, but but uh, we sent him the treat, we sent him the treatment. Tim made this, in addition to those Wikipedia pages, he did like a full, um, a full series Bible. It was probably 15 pages, almost like it was written from the perspective of a shared therapist um, for both Downey and Finkelman. It's a wonderful, it's a yeah, really, you, really- You sent that to me, John, and I, it made me feel so bad about myself that it was hard for me to, <laughs> to read. I was just like, that's, I've, never, that's my goal. I've never done this and can't even conceive of ever doing this with a show yeah. I haven't written yet. It's kind of amazing, but go on. And, um, and then uh, we sent that to, to, to uh, Jeff or to Jeff's manager and never heard back. And so I thought, well, maybe we'll try to find, we'll try to find Finkelman. I can't remember if Danny was the prototype from the very beginning, but um, do you remember Tim? I certainly think he was in the mix. I feel Danny like- has, um, Danny's agent is this legendary guy named Fred Spector, who I think oh, is right. 92 years old. He's at, um, he's, he's at, he's at creative artists. He's been there for, uh, forever. Um, I, th- I think he fought in the Korean war. I mean, he is an incredible, incredible, <laughs> he's sort of like a, he's a living legend right now. And he's a, he's an awesome guy. And I, I think my wife was, I, th- I think my wife is, w- was an agent at CAA at the time. And she was just like, Call Fred Spector, ask him to go to, you know, ask him to go to lunch. And you sometimes forget that you can just make these phone calls and that 
these people will have lunch with you maybe. And so I remember I had lunch, right. I had lunch with Fred and, um, and I pitched him on this project and he said he would get it to Danny. And, um, and he, and then maybe like two, three months went by and I just got a phone call from Fred Spector. And he said, he said something like, sometimes the sun smiles upon you, my friend. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he's like, Danny's interested. He loves the document. Um, so we, uh, so we met with Danny right at the Imagine offices. Does that sound, does right. that sound right? Yeah. yeah. Totally. So you've got Danny before you, before Goldblum. Does Danny help you then get Goldblum? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So you go, okay. So this, you've got this package, you've got Danny DeVito and Jeff Goldblum, both basically attached to this project. Right. Right. And you take that, now you're taking that package out to buyers and to, right. to, to cable streaming at this point, uh, not networks, right. I'm assuming. Um, and it's still that, it still doesn't go. That's crazy. Well, we take it out, we sell, we, we get sell it, but, little, but yeah, we did, definitely sell it and it still right. doesn't go. Yeah. We yeah, had a, we had a lot of offers on it too. There was really a very enthusiastic response to the, um, to the pitch. Um, and as you could imagine, you're doing the road show with Tim and Danny and Jeff and Brian Grazer. And it was, it was really a highlight of my career thus far. And, um, I think we had like five offers on it. If I remember Tim. Yeah. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, most of the time Jeff was in the room, but Danny was on, on a screen because he was in New York doing an Arthur Miller play. And Danny, without telling us for our first meeting, decided to be in character. Like he wasn't <laughs> like, he was like, this asshole thought he was so smart and he sold out all the talent he ever had. And it's like, that's his introduction. Like he's not like, well, here's why we think this is a good show. This is why this is a good writer. He's in immediately. And, and Goldman was like, oh, well. <laughs> like there's sort of a delightful feeling of like, this is not going how we expected it to go at all, but not in a bad way. But he's just like bringing the full force of the character. It's it's amazing because I mean, now having heard it with Harry Shearer, it's just like, oh my god, of course it's Harry Shearer. Like, I thought he was he, great. He I thought was, he was great. He, he was so great. Yeah. But you can also see, wow, it's so Danny DeVito. Like, he yeah, yeah, yeah. I love what they, I love what Harry did, and yeah. it's uh, it's never exactly easy to get Harry to do stuff, but he was very <laughs> enthusiastic to do this. So I was really grateful that he uh, he jumped aboard. Well, there's such meaty parts. I mean, I think what you what you did, um, which is I think people often forget, is you have to write roles that a, a great actor is going to look at and be like, oh my god, I want to say yeah. these words. And and all of you know these 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 roles really are that. I mean, the role that um, certainly obviously you know the two guys, but Paget, the role Paget read is is almost like the heart of the the show you know watching it, i think i didn't really really re realize that reading it but then listening or you know watching it i was just like wow, he did emily, an incredible job too yeah yeah emily's just the heart of this this thing it's yeah. in, it's in a way kind of her her show definitely um, definitely and and even you know the and the kids are great roles too but that's i you know but what's amazing is they they were just getting that from a treatment and a, a sort of right a series right Bible, not even the, the script yet uh, yeah it's even more impressive um 
So, okay, so you go and you've got all these offers, you land on Amazon. Do you remember why Amazon, if you've got five places? Amazon was willing to make a deal with us um, that was uh, a scripts to series deal. So, um, you know, without getting too much in the weeds, uh, Imagine was going to be the studio on this project. This was going to be their first project where they would um, be the studio, which means they would, they would be in charge of, of, um, of financing the show. And so uh, it can be a really, you really don't want to be in the business of financing pilots because pilots don't go a lot of the time and you can burn through a lot of money very, very quickly. Um, so, uh, so the independent studio model is usually based on a scripts to series um, uh, model. And, um, and they were, I think they were willing to make a deal with us for like three scripts, um, and, uh, and potentially a writer, like a mini writer's room. And, uh, um, and so that's what we did. And did you write those three scripts? We definitely did. Yeah. Yeah. We ended up getting a writer's room with some great talent. We had a guy named, uh, Ian Maxwell Graham, who had been on The Simpsons with me for a long time, uh, a really talented young writer named Hannah Friedman, and then another great writer named Shauna McGarry. And so that was our little core. And I think Yoni Brenner came in for a little while. So we had a really good team. And we set up this little room and imagine, and uh, it was, yeah, it was really fun. And those scripts exist. <laughs> all right, we should have, while well, we had the cast, we should have, you know, we should Just have knocked them all the out. Ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then I can ask you, what is Graham's, so Graham is Emily's, you know, fiance, Emily, who was married at different times, Arlo and Matt, and you allude to a secret uh, that Graham has. Oh, his secret is that he is a lifelong obsessive Downey and Finkelton fan, after <laughs> having pretended to Emily that he never heard of them. And, and was at one point actually like the head of their North American fan club. Yeah, and they knew who he was, and they were kind of holding it over him. Because they knew that her whole point of wanting to get with Graham was to like get away from this world, and he had just like he had just like a, a like a burst a full to bursting closet full of downy and stuff. <laughs> and then and then Maya, who comes in quite late in the pilot, um, does she become their new manager? She's a daughter yes, of their old she, manager. Yes, I don't think I mean there they had a manager named Lou Caniglia who was sort of based on. Um, this guy, do you remember the guy's name, John? Shep Gordon. A about him. Shep Gordon. Shep Gordon. He, there was a documentary yeah. about him called Supermensch. Right. Where he was like the greatest. That the, uh, the Mike Myers uh, did right. documentary. Right. Yeah. Right. And we, we had this whole character like sketched out for him that he was, uh, yeah, that he used to be kind of this hard charging, almost Scott Rudin type guy, or like the guy who, um, who managed Led Zeppelin, whose name is escaping me, but Peter, just the kind Peter of guy. Grant. Peter Grant, like the kind of guy who would like get physical with like promoters who weren't being giving them favorable deals and like throwing fax machines and baked potatoes at interest heads <laughs> and stuff. But uh, yeah, at one point, but then he became kind of this guru type guy and moved to Hawaii um, and, and sort of like became a Buddhist. So, so he'd say things like, uh, when I was throwing fax machines at people's heads, I was really throwing them at myself. Like he had become very, <laughs> philosoph very philosophical about the business, but his daughter, uh, 
had not wanted to do anything with the business. She went to law school, but then she ends up managing them. And then she, he becomes her sort of like Obi-Wan Kenobi about how to deal with these guys. Um, and then we also had this kind of like country guy, this guy from Oklahoma who somehow ended up living with Finkelman because he needed a roommate. There's a lot going on. So, you know, in our brief interview, you alluded to, you know, resurfacing the trauma of, of this. Uh, <laughs> right this not happening and i can see it's hard enough when you just write a uh, one the pilot episode of something you love and it doesn't go but this you got even in even deeper i mean you had a room oh my god we went so deep yeah it was like we snatched defeat from the jaws of victory it was like one of those things where it just felt like oh this is gonna go and then it just sort of the wheels came off and it's gonna go it's it's gonna happen at some point it's certainly gonna happen rather's not i will say like you know you know, John and I had this meeting and I brought up the podcast and, you know, I was like, if you, if there's any scripts you love and he was just like, this is the one. So he's certainly, yeah, we're definitely going to get this back on the, on, yeah. uh, whether it'll be a series or a movie or something. I feel like it's, I'm too excited about it. But do you think, cause you did say like, there's a million ways for things to go wrong and we did all, I mean, do you think you made mistakes like that anything that, or is it just yes. a randomness? I definitely, of- I, I, well, I definitely think there's a randomness. I think that there's a, uh, the people who, negotiate this process well um they have a certain set of skills which is that they know when to hold them and know when to hold them i think that there's a time like you hear stories about judd apatow saying oh i don't want to do that i guess i'm walking away or phil rosenthal when he did everybody loves raymond saying oh you want that kind of joke well that's not the show i'm going to do i'm going to walk away and then he kept quitting like i felt like i have less of this now um for whatever reason but there's a feeling of like you've got all these people You've got like an actor who's also a producer. You've got the studio, you've got the network. And like my, I think my tendency sometimes to a fault is to be like, okay, I'll take that note. Okay, sure. Well, you want that? I'll do that. You know what you're doing. Cause like, it just felt like I never really worked at this level before. I think that hold, I think the most important thing you could do is hold on tight to your vision. And I don't think I did that enough if I'm going to be honest in a, and I don't think I would do that again. Um, because the fact is that like, if you take all the notes, there's still every chance in the world it won't work out. So you might as well just stick to what you want. Uh, and then it probably won't work out either, but at least you can walk away with your head held high. Are you saying you're too Canadian? <laughs> yes. Yes. And in the, in the interim, I've become an American citizen, which means that I'm, I've become a recalcitrant bastard. Okay, good. Which is what you need to be. But is, but is right. this version, this version feels the, this script doesn't strike me as a noted to death script. I I don't think so. And and I, I think every time Tim took notes, he's selling himself short just a bit. I I, I think um uh I think the the script continued to improve as it went through the process. I think maybe what Tim is saying is like ultimately and and I'm learning a lot about this as as you know as I as I go through as I go through my career. I think I think to some degree we let him down. Um, there were circumstances beyond our control. Um, the, the regime that bought our, and perhaps more crucially than anything else, if you took a few steps back from this, was the regime that bought our show at Amazon. Um, they were all fired, and justifiably, they were up to some. They were up to some bad stuff, um, and and a new regime came in and. Uh, they didn't feel the connection to it, you know, and, and, 
you have to remember it's a very common story very I mean, common but story. The, the listeners are going like what another another yeah. episode of dead pilot society where there was a regime change it's in 75 percent right. of these stories is well the person right. we sold it to wasn't there by the time pickups were happening so this is and, again a case of that and i I get it. It's, you know, this, this, they, they couldn't make a pilot. As we said, they had to order this thing to series and this was going to be an expensive show shot on. We, we were, we felt like we were really close. We had the room, we had the scripts, we had, um, uh, uh, imagine was putting together. I think we got pretty far down the road, putting budgets together and having budget conversations with Amazon. Um, but, uh, but ultimately, you know, one of these endeavors is going to cost a show like this is, is going to cost eight episodes of it is, is going to be $50 million probably before any marketing expensive actors. Yeah. Yeah. So you're asking, yeah. you're really asking and, it, and it's, and it's a, a deep pocketed company, but nevertheless, we're asking for a lot of money. Um, and so everything has to go right. And everybody really has to feel invested in it. So it's not, surprising that that story is um is so common but i think if we had i think what you what you learn kind of going through this a few times is that all those all those creative tweaks that tim made like he was suggesting were maybe on the margins like the core of this the spirit of it didn't really change a ton from the beginning to the draft that you guys read and i think that's that's instructive because what what our responsibility is, is to, is to just keep pushing it forward, just to keep, just to keep moving that, you know, proverbial ball down the field and fighting for it. Um, and, uh, and, and until, until um, they've spent enough money on it that they, they can't say, they, they can no longer say no. Um, there was a certain, and, there was a certain, it did feel a little Sisyphean after a while. Like you'd get these notes, you'd write a draft and everyone was like, this is great. This is great. This is great. And then you'd be like, people would have a few notes here and there, but to get, then you'd be back on the bottom of the hill. So like you'd make the notes and then you'd send it to a producer and that would be a couple of weeks. And then it would be go up the hill a little bit more to the studio and they would take a little while and they would then have some notes and like, now that I think about it, maybe not that. And then you get to the network and they haven't seen a draft in like six months. And there was a, uh, you just get to the point where you're like, time is marching forward, you know, mm -hmm. like momentum is such an, an important part of this. And suddenly we're all turning into old men. And it's like the excitement we had is it, it you know, like air starts to come out of the balloon. Right. And they've got new stuff coming in and stuff. And then inevitably, like you just have to, yeah, what John said is absolutely true. You just got to keep moving. And if, you know, it's like that classic line that's in Annie Hall about how a relationship is like a shark has to keep constantly moving forward or it dies. So is a pilot. Right. And if you're just fussing with stuff, and I mean, that's, we all love working in streaming or cable, but that's one thing that network has going for it is that like, you've got to get stuff done. And if it's not done by May, it's not happening. So at least there's a sense of momentum. Show like this, you know, Amazon has plenty of stuff they can put on the air. Imagine has a full slate. Like they don't have to do anything. Right. Um, I mean, John, what do you, you know, writers are often frustrated by their producers or their studio execs feeling like, why aren't you backing me up uh, and fighting back against these, these notes sometimes? Um, but you have to have this, 
this calculus of like which of these notes are crucial you, you've obviously got to please the people who are going to make this the decisions whether or not to put the show on the air or not but at the same time you've got a writer who's trying to hold on to a vision as you're as you're talking uh -huh. about like, it, you know writers we can never figure out which notes to fight and you know which which hills to die on and um i mean how do you think about those decisions? I mean, are you ever like, look, just, I know you don't want to do this, but it's, you know, are, are you able to sort of step back and go like, this isn't actually a bad note, you know? Um, you know, how much do you feel like, okay, just please the people because we're trying to get this on the air? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, well, first, firstly, there are a lot of really smart people working on the buy side. Um, in our business. And a lot of them have really, really great ideas and, and, and great notes. Now, I think a lot of people, um, a lot of people in our business probably uh, fundamentally uh, believe a little too strongly in the efficacy of, of their notes. Uh, whereas I think that ultimately, like we said before, this is all stuff that's happening on the margins. You're either you're either in business with the right person, with the right people, with the right idea, or you're not. Um, uh, and everything else is kind of just rearranging the deck chairs. But I think, to answer your question more directly, the, the challenge is that, is that it's very hard, even within a network uh, or streaming, any, 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 any buyer, any platform, for a single person, uh, who's not the top person to get something done um, and to declare, uh, you know, this is something that we have to make. You're not incentivized to do it. And even if you were, it, you, you, it, it, you probably wouldn't have the power to do it. And so, um, you know, these organizations have become, these companies are, are really about consensus and um, they're trying to get as close to consensus as they possibly can um, on things that are inherently, Tim, what's the word for unconsensionable or something? Yeah, the, the, <laughs> yeah. there's no, there's, yeah, there's, it's all about like, what's, if you don't have a situation where someone could just say like, I will put my job on the line for this. I don't care what you think. You and know, so, it is like every, it, and things tend to become inoffensive because of that. And, right? and, and like so if, I if, think, if, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I just feel like it, it tends not to, it, it tends to smooth the edges off of things. Like you everybody, has, thing, if everyone has, You gotta be the thing no one everyone, hates rather than the thing one person loves. That is very, I, well, very well put. I've started to think about it just a little differently. I think that the important thing in an environment where consensus is so important, instead of like raging against the consensus machine, because that's not going to um, do anyone any good or be very productive. I think the important thing is that each person along the assembly line who's, who's, um, who's gonna be reading a, a script has to see something of themselves um, in, in, in the project. And that could come about in a number of different ways. It could be an emotional connection to a character for some, it could be uh, uh, they could see an economic incentive uh, in, in it in some way, uh, and they could see a programming play in some way, whatever it is. Um, some could also see their 
uh, an implementation of a note that they've or an idea that they've uh, delivered. Um, but if you can get close to that, then I think you've got all um, you've hopefully got a lot of people marching toward the same toward the same beat. Um, and, and, and that helps. Well, it's it's obviously just a great pilot. It's um, it's quality. I mean, it's just like a quality <laughs> okay. product. It's just you know so thoughtful, and the characters are so well drawn, and it's so clearly there's just such intelligence and thought behind all of this, all of the decisions, and there's so much backstory, and it just seems like it is something that is destined eventually. Um, to to get it's also easy to pitch right it's just kind of like yeah let's it's like you know it's just like you you yeah, something yeah. but you don't always have uh that that really easy well when we when we eventually get this made in some format whether it's tv or movies or a series of video games i don't know <laughs> i want you to break 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 precedent and have us on again and and have a, a produced pilot that turned into a wonderful hit series we'd still like to come back and talk about it i would i would love that well, thank you both. Um, it was it was a pleasure, uh, and uh, I'm glad people are are getting to to hear it with this with this great cast. It's, uh... Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity. It was a real treat. Thank right. you. Thank, thank you. you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Dead Pilot Society is produced by me and my partner Ben Blacker and our associate producer Noah Finling, and masterfully edited by Jordan Katz. If you like this show, the best thing you can do is tell a friend about us. Uh, second best thing is probably to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can follow us on social media to find out all the latest. We're on Twitter at Dead Pilots Pod and on Instagram at Dead Pilots Society. Hey, you know our theme song was made by Ted Leo. It's pretty cool. I don't say that enough. Okay, until next time, I'm Andrew Reich. Thank you for listening. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.